0: In addition to protecting and preserving your physical capital, there's also the concept of emotional capital. You know, as a general rule, you don't want to be in a position where your emotions are clouding your judgment. We talk a lot about, does it feel like a struggle? Does it feel like, you know, we're fighting the market? And a sort of general learning over the years has been, if it feels like a struggle, if it feels like you're fighting, you should probably scale down or get out.
1: It's not every day you meet a trained Robert Trader, who at a mature age of his life decides to set up his own fund management business and ends up building it into one of the world's largest discretionary commodity-only fund management businesses. So you can imagine that I learned a lot from speaking to my guest today, and I'm sure you will too. Welcome back to Top Traders Unplugged where the best traders in the world come to share their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Let's rejoin the conversation with your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup-Larsen. You mentioned that briefly when you said the difficult times in 2011 Uh, you know markets were highly correlated etc etc i mean uh, when you talk about these you know ratios to me it doesn't sound like correlation plays a big role but it probably does somehow how does it play a role in in what you do
0: so so correlation plays a big role in in our risk um you know because we're running a var model right and so to the extent that Things are getting more or less correlated. Then our VAR model will be allowing us more more risk or less risk. Okay. Um, at a more macro level, you know, a challenge always f- for us is how do you weight the fundamental analysis against mm. the uh, statistical side, as well against technicals and yeah. against macro drivers so we're actually just seeing a great example of it in the petroleum market so in the last week petroleum prices uh, you know they rallied from $48 to 54 and have dropped back to 50 yeah and fundamentally things have got worse explain that <laughs> so so during the course of last week we had uh, you know US inventories continue to build to levels that have never been seen before. Right, okay. Um, you've had the Saudi Arabians announce that the, they've just pumped more oil than they've ever pumped in a month before, okay. at 10.3 million barrels a day. Right, wow. Um, you've got the prospect of Iranian production coming back, yet for some reason investors at the end of last week chose to pick on one slender little piece of potentially good news that week-on-week on week U.S. onshore oil production have fallen for the first time since January right. by 50,000 barrels a day or something <laughs> and triggered a short covering rally that moved the market 10% sure. in three days.
1: So what, how do you make sense of that? I mean, <laughs> uh, because well, if, I, if, I, if you were systematic you know, you, you wouldn't care about why yeah. these things were happening. You wouldn't have to worry about it. You just say, okay, the the price is up. So you either get stopped out or you stay with your position or you reduce it. You don't worry about this. But, but you're so, doing so, something, so, yeah.
0: So if you like, yes, we do a combination of those right. <laughs> with the added human element that we worry about it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, so that's a great point about, you know, and – you know, sometimes the markets are driven mostly by fundamentals. Sometimes they're driven more by flow. Yeah. Um, and so the art of what we do is to handicap the one against the other. And, you know, basically if we think, you know, if we have a strong fundamental view and we think, you know, that short term the market is is behaving from our point of view irrationally, then we might be more inclined to stick with the position. Yeah. If
1: you don't uh, mind me asking, because it's such a great example, everybody knows uh, and follows, uh, I guess, uh, oil at the moment. Uh, yeah. do, do you mind sharing what, what, how you're playing oil at the moment, uh, sort of in general, but also given these kind of sort of counter rallies we see? I mean, well, what do what do you think about oil? Uh, what
0: do you make of all of this at the moment? Well, we've been, we've had a, you know, for really since the summer of uh, of last year, we've been generally on the bear side of the oil yeah. market, yeah. Uh, because you know fundamentally it was a big, big surpluses were developing. The OPEC, uh, the, the OPEC, pardon me, the OPEC meeting was a real game changer. It essentially meant, you know, the, the Saudis were going to let the market take care of the price. Right. And therefore, that would mean prices won't won't be eighty or ninety prices will be forty or fifty yeah um, and we had the strong down move um you know from october through to mid january sure. since mid since mid January you've had a more two way market with some some quite sharp rallies um, and the market's now arguing if you like, is the bottom in right fundamentally we would say no the bottom's not in mm-hmm. but price action wise we've had to respond to the price action we've had to manage p&l okay and you know it's an interesting i think it's an interesting example maybe the commodity markets have become more financialized right um and in particular in the in in oil you have the dynamic of the etfs mm-hmm. Um, and so, huge amounts of inflows have been, have been seen into the exchange-traded funds, um, which essentially, you know, I think had this – the last time oil prices behaved uh, similar to today um, was in 1986.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and I think if this was happening as it, as it happened in 1986, we would have seen prices below $40 a barrel now. Okay. Um, What's been different this time is because you were able, because investors who wouldn't normally be able to trade commodity futures had an easy vehicle to take a view on oil prices, you had a tremendous amount of bargain hunting uh, come into the market which has probably come in at too high a level too early, mm. but it stopped the price going as low as fundamentals say the price should go. So the net result of that is that you know maybe, it has, maybe there's enough money being thrown at it that a bottom is being created here, but that will come at the cost of future oil prices because the price hasn't moved low enough to change future production. Right right and so a lot of those cancelled drill rigs might well be not cancelled right okay <laughs> um, so it's an interesting um, sure. Sure. you know a more equity like dynamic so so commodity supply demand analysis and and the behavior of commodity markets historically has been has been backward looking and reactive it's not really been forward looking yeah um, whereas equity markets, people look further forward, and so, and so there's a limit to which a, a commodity market can look forward because sure. commodities need to be stored and they're real and and so on. But um, it de- definitely creates a different dynamic.
1: Yeah, you know, I think often you you think about discretionary traders and and uh, you know you I guess discretionary traders have often become the stars meaning you know systematic uh, firms they 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 rarely make it on the cover of of the big uh, you know papers but you know a discretionary trader uh, someone making a big call like Paulson did on yeah. on US housing and so on and so forth they they take a lot of, sort of the limelight um, some people suspect that discretionary traders in some ways also make the use of models like a simple trend following model would help uh, you know in 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 many situations to to guide discretionary bets and then you could trade around this i mean do you also make use of basic trend following models to guide you as to where the 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 price is heading uh, uh, or, or do you not look at that at all
0: we we will consider technical factors on timing. Okay. And on setting stop losses or profit targets.
1: But technical analysis, to me, is a little bit different from trend-following models.
0: We do not use, do not use uh, systematic models to right. guide Okay. So more looking and, at and charts. So, so, yeah. So we okay. look at charts and we say, okay, you know, depending on what the we 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 sort of refer to it as voodoo science but (laughs) like like we're we're there we're there with our voodoo dolls as well from time to time but um you know what's the fibonacci retracement right okay you know where where are the moving at the moving averages crossed sure Uh, so on so forth it's an, actually, it's a it's a it's a thing we've discussed down the years. Is should we make use of systematic models to at least to sort of understand the dynamic of what's sure. going on with other people? Sure, sure.
1: Um, but the jury's still out, I guess. Oh,
0: well, we've the the issue a little bit is you've got to be true to your style. Yeah, if you start. If you start trying to overlay your fundamental with a systematic, you run the risk of of not of not really trusting either. Yeah, and so we 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 tend to, you know, our competitive advantage, our strength, is our fundamental analysis, sure. um, and we'll bet on that, and we'll use our risk process to keep us from losing too much money if either we're wrong or the market. The market doesn't reckon that, You know, we're, usually we're not wrong. We're, we're either we're, 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 we're either into earlier or stay too late. Sure, sure, sure. Um,
1: Just a quick question on the markets uh, you trade. Um, you trade uh, a lot of different commodities, but I did notice that you don't trade precious metals. Why is that?
0: Um, we don't trade base metals either. It, it's it's a function of um, the need to have a network and an understanding. Okay. So, you know, I'm a rubber trader who became a petroleum trader. Doug's a grain trader who became a petroleum trader. Okay. Uh, we, we don't have the networks. Um,
1: That's very simple. That's very simple. Now, I wanted just to round off the, the trading strategies as a whole. We talked about the directional side and yeah. and so on and so forth. Maybe you could just enlighten us a little bit about uh, the, the relative value side. You know, you have the intra commodity types trading, and you have the inter-commodity trading. Can you give some examples mm. for people who may not really understand what that means? Well, what are these kind of strategies yeah. that you employ?
0: Yeah. Okay, so some some sort of points about how our approach to relative value trading. So it's important to note that we're not trading statistical correlation. So when we enter a relative value trade, the, the legs of the pair trade need to be first-order related. So there has to be some real meaningful physical linkage between them. So, for instance, you might find, you know, a very strong statistical correlation between rubber and crude oil. Mm -hmm. But it's clearly not a first-order impact. And so we wouldn't trade that as a spread. Okay because that correlation will last till it doesn't last. And you won't know why it's gonna break down because you, you might guess why it exists, but it's very difficult to know why it exists. Sure. Whereas if you trade gasoline against crude oil, they're directly linked. You change the price of gasoline, you change the price of crude oil and vice sure. versa. Sure. So. The second thing to note about our approach to relative value trading is that we don't assume uh, mean reversion. Okay. So a lot of people look at commodity spreads and, and basically take them, you know, treat them on a mean reverting statistical basis. Right. Um, that's very dangerous because mm. indeed many, many commodity spread relationships do mean revert until they don't. And. Mm-hmm. Um, when, and, you know, a great example was the, the, you know, the spread between Brent and WTI, um, which for many, many years was a very tightly bounded spread, and it was to do with the relative cost of importing Brent crude oil into the U.S. against the cost of using domestic crude oil. Mm. And so that spread moved over a minus two to plus two dollar barrel range forever. Right. and people people got very comfortable with statistical you know mean reversion approach to that trading and then in beginning actually in about 2007 as you started to grow the onshore North American production first of all off the Canadian tar sands and then more laterally off the um, off the u.s shale suddenly you started to overwhelm the you know, the delivery logistics in Cushing, which is the delivery point from WTI, and you know, the markets diverged because the conditions that had led to mean reversion didn't exist anymore. Mm. And that spread went all the way to minus (laughs) twenty-five. So, so that's by way of preamble. So then we break the, the we, we sort of break the world down into, as you say, several different types of uh, of, of uh, generic um, relative value trades. First one, as you said, is intra-commodity, which is calendar spreads. Right. So same commodity, same market, different place on the uh, on the time curve.
1: So July corn versus December corn could be corn. an example.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's the sort of bread and butter of commodity markets. Okay. So the, the the calendar spread and the carry charge, um, you know, it's very deeply fundamental. You know, generally oversupplied markets are in contango. Generally, undersupplied markets are in backwardation. And the severity of the contango and backwardation are very closely correlated to the to the level of oversupply or level of uh, level of um undersupply and therefore tends actually to go quite closely with the directional um to the extent that long the near short the forward or as bond traders would say a uh, a curve tightener mm-hmm. is called the bull spread um short, the near, long, the forward, or a curve steepness called the bear spread. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. But again, that's only seven times out of ten. Yeah, exactly. Not a not hundred out of ten. Then um, the next broad category is intercommodity, which are different things but closely related in our case. So the crack spreads, gasoline against crude oil, heating oil against crude oil, the products against themselves, so gasoline against heating oil. So you've got a you've got a set of relationships around refining economics. Mm. Um, by analogy, when you crush a soybean, you get soybean oil and soybean meal. Right. And so so you have a crush spread where you trade soybean against its products. Um, then you have a you can think about sort of supply side substitutions. So if you, um, you know, are you going to use WTI or Brent? Are you going to use uh, sweet crude or sour crude? Right. Uh, are you going to use, uh, rather than cracking crude oil, are you going to crack fuel oil? Uh-huh. If you're generating power, are you going to burn that gas or are you going to burn coal? Sure. And then there are sorts of consumption supply economics um Robusta coffee, Arabica coffee. So when Nestle is making gold blend, how much, how much, how much cheaper Robusta are they going to blend in with expensive Arabica?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, is a vegetable oil maker going to use more palm oil and more soybean oil? Sure. So there's a whole range of relationships in the intercommodity space. Sure. And, and and of all the
1: strategies that you run, are there any one that you would say are, are more core, where you put more risk budgeting towards?
0: Uh... uh, we're very we're very opportunistic. Okay, it's it's the way the cookie crumbles. Um, sometimes markets, you know, crude oil in December and January, there was no point being relative value. Right. It was all about the price couldn't be 80 or 90 anymore. It needs to be something under 50. Yeah. Um, and then there are other times when there isn't particularly a strong directional move. And then it's more about relative value. Sure. I was just doing some work, actually. Over the life of the fund, approximately 55% of our return has come from directional.
1: Okay, okay.
0: That's and last year last year it was 58 from directional so last year was a bit more of a directional year sure. than uh, than others talk to me a little bit about
1: sort of the trade idea generation to implementation into the portfolio how what's the typical process for for something like that i know you're opportunistic so obviously i'm sure ideas could come and go but but what sort of a typical process you have to go through in order to, you know, get an idea into an actual position?
0: Um, our's is very simple because we don't we we allocate the we we have a risk committee right, and the risk committee meets once a week and review you know the traders present their current positions and their ideas. Um, and the risk committee decides how much risk it's allocating to each sector and each trader, mm-hmm. um, and then it's up to the trader to decide how he's implementing that. We don't, we don't, re- we don't have an investment committee that pre-approves trade ideas. Right. So, so the trader is given his risk budget, and within his risk budget, and his, you know, his mandated sphere of operation, it's his call. Okay. And then he obviously reports it back and you know gives us his thinking. Sure. But we don't we don't sit there and say no we think that's a terrible idea. Don't do it. Sure. So so that's very um you know and that's a function of us being a small team sure. that knows each other very well. And so 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 basically what each trader is doing is he is following the the commodities that he's responsible for. Right. And it, he is prime. His primary responsibility is to find the best ideas. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's very different. Um, the, the the world we grew up in is very different from, let's say, the classic uh, capital markets model, banking model, where you have analysts feeding traders with ideas, and the traders essentially being tactical executors of analyst-generated ideas. Yeah. Um in the model we grew up in, to the extent that we're even analysts at all, um, their job was to do you know, help the trader in his research. So so always the prime the always the expectation was that as the trader, you are primarily responsible for your idea generation. Mm. And and in a way we find it a little bit bizarre why would a trader with 30 years experience take guidance from a five-year analyst sure <laughs> <laughs> or take ideas from a five-year analyst It's yeah. sort of, you know it's a bit back to front
1: yeah yeah
0: in our in our way of thinking
1: so so the traders obviously have a lot of room to 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 do what they feel yeah. is right so yeah. so the question i have here is are the traders, and I'm not entirely sure how many of on your team you three, regard as three. three okay, three, so three. are they very different type of traders? you know, I know they trade different markets, but but are they also different in their style of trading? Uh, meaning,
0: yes, okay. no, no, yes. Everybody has individual styles. Some people are naturally more relative value, other right. people are more directional. Um, for instance, you know, in my trading career, I'm much more a relative value trader. Okay. Um, I'm not a great directional trader. Um, Doug, my partner, is a very strong directional trader. Mm-hmm. Some people, typically, somebody will be one or the other. Very, very rare to find somebody who's. I guess, I guess you know the analogy again. To use a soccer analogy, you know, two-footed <laughs> players are quite rare. Yeah. Sure. No, that's <laughs> that's very true. And yeah, so 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 part of the thing we're looking for. You know, at the minute, it's a small trading team, but but always, you know, if we were adding to the trading team a balance, there'd be a balance criteria around what's the style of the guy we're adding. Yeah. Will he complement, will he fill a gap we currently have? You know, if we think we're, you know, the team at the minute's a bit more relative value than it is directional sure. maybe we need to add a guy who's who's stronger directionally um yeah. that that would become a factor if a team expansion time
1: sure sure and and do the in managing the the so the, the risk side uh, maybe jumping a little bit here mm. but just in manage, in managing that do the traders have specific stop losses that they when when they put on a trade
0: or no okay no so we don't we don't require stop losses on trade initiation. So our whole risk management process is really about managing the whole, whole portfolio. We start to require stop losses when the whole portfolio gets into drawdown, te- you know, is is hitting drawdown triggers.
1: Right. Okay.
0: OK. And then we'll require the traders to get very specific on, you know, what are you cutting? What do you want to hold? Where are you cutting?
1: Sure. Now you mentioned that you were over you know you were involved in the risk management side, so I just wanted to to jump to that area and just ask you in general i mean how how do you define risk i mean is it just the the v a r that for you is 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 your measure of of risk or are there any other types of risks that you look at
0: well we we have a sort of tripartite process and um so we we have our VAR model. Um, we actually put more, we to catch the tail in the VAR. We we run a stress test and a stress model, um, and then we have our P&L de-risking triggers. Mm. And so P&L trumps stress and VAR. Stress trumps VAR, if uh, if that makes sense. Right? Can you say that again? <laughs> Just. So p yeah. overrides everything. Right. Okay. So if we're losing more than five percent for the week, or you know more than five percent from high water, we are cutting risk, even if we're only fifty percent invested on against our VAR and our stress test. Okay. Okay. Secondly, secondly, the stress test overrides the VAR. Okay. So we have a we have a stress limit of ten percent. Okay. And so it's conceivable and it does happen. You might have a day where, you know, the VAR, against our VAR model, we're only 85% invested, but against our stress model, we're 11%. Right. And in that case, we would cut risk. Okay. Okay. We will tolerate being over VAR. So as long as P&L and stress are okay, we wouldn't, we might, talk, we might allow the VAR to go over target rather than to arbitrarily take profit on a position or reduce the position.
1: Sure, sure, sure. Now, in the systematic space, and I'm, I'm just curious about how that translates into your world, um, a lot of people focus on how many winning trades do you have compared to how many losing trades. I mean... Do you do you do you even know that and and I mean do you follow that uh, from a, that perspective?
0: We, we, we follow it by sh- uh, at the strategy level. Okay. So okay. how many? Not not each individual buy and sell, but each individual. So every trade we do goes into a strategy, and every strategy is part of a theme. Okay. And so let's say. So let's say a theme might be we are bearish petroleum. Okay. That then might be expressed in, you know, we are bear spread the calendar.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: We're directionally short. Sure. And we're short gasoline, long heating oil because it's winter and. Sure. You know, heating oil demands relatively better than gasoline. Sure. So that would all be thematically, a big part of that theme would be that we're bearish oil prices then the individual strategies then are different ways you know various ways of expressing that we have a win to loss ratio over the life of the fund of about i want to say 7 out of 10 wow that's high yeah but the danger for us is because our positions are fundamentally based and so on the danger is when we're wrong we tend not to be a little bit wrong <laughs> um, sure. And so, therefore, it's very the risk downside risk management is very important. Sure. And you know, in 2011, for instance, our, our win loss ratio dropped to three to seven.
1: Sure.
0: Three, three win to seven loss, which again is a measure of how difficult the environment was. 2012, even though we lost money, it was back to five out of ten. Okay.
1: And speaking about those periods, you mentioned it. It kind of drives me into the next uh, sort of area. I just wanted to touch upon, which is drawdowns in in general, um, and not so much the specific drawdowns, but but really more and more about, you know, what what do you what do you learn, what do you take away from the drawdowns you've had over the years? What and and what have you perhaps changed um, as a consequence of, of being in a drawdown?
0: Yeah I mean I think um you know like like many experiences in life you you can read about it and intellectually understand it but till you till you actually put your hand in the fire and get burned sure. you you don't emotionally understand that burning yourself's not a good idea um and so I think you know we we learn we learned the halfway the you know the basic lesson that you really don't want to compound negatively right when you're in a when you're in a hole stop digging yeah and so in 2011 we didn't stop digging quickly enough sure and that's you know that's very basic but you know we had to because our prior to 2011 our risk process was always the the P&L de-risking triggers were all around the week
1: Right. Not losing
0: more than five percent a week. Sure. And it wasn't a complete. We washed the slate at the end of the week. the The risk process calls for, you know, as you de, as you lose money, you de-risk and you don't add risk back till you stop losing money. Right. And, and you're feeling comfortable. But we'd never given consideration to peak to trough draw. So is there is there some level at which you should, regardless of regardless of how your P&L is this week or this month, is there right. some level where you should, you know.
1: Be more aggressive in your cutting of just
0: to... yeah. yeah. And so we, after 2011, we've developed some peak to trough metrics that, that reflect that. Sure.
1: And I guess also, I mean, we we talked a little bit about it, but I mean, I guess also emotionally um, dealing with it, I guess that
0: no, be also something
1: uh, you taught, you learned from, I guess.
0: Well, I mean, it's it's been a big, you know. Again, it's a learning lesson. It's something we talk about a lot. The idea of, in addition to, in addition to protecting and preserving your physical capital, you, there's also the concept of emotional capital. Yeah. Um, and you know, you need to protect your emo- You know, everybody's got different. You know, different um, levels of emotional capital to spend and how quickly they spend it but you know as a general rule you know you don't want to you don't want to be in a position where where your emotions are clouding your judgment um and so you know the concept of we talk a lot about does it feel like a struddle right does it feel like you know, we're fighting the market. And a sort of general learning over the years has been if it feels like a struggle, if it feels like you're fighting, you should probably scale down or yeah. get out. Yeah. Yeah. And because the beauty of the beauty of running a fund relative to a physical commodity book sure. is that in the fund you you're in control of when you take risk. Sure. You you are deciding each day, do I want to take this risk or don't I? Yeah. In a physical business, you get the risk given to you by your need to maintain your customer, you know, you need to maintain market share both with customers and producers. Yeah. So, you know, a big part of what you know in my role as 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 risk manager is to keep reminding the traders of that. Yeah. You know, don't you know, you're in control. If you're, if it feels too much like hard work today, don't fight it. There'll be other opportunities yeah. next week or the week after. Don't, yeah. don't get sucked into a war of attrition that you don't need to fight.
1: Yeah. Why do you think? I mean, I, I clearly we as managers uh, feel the the emotional side of yeah. of um, of drawdowns, but something inside us, I guess. Um, it makes us overcome these periods and believe that over time, uh, if the strategy is sound, uh, it will come back. And 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 you know, for many 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 people, it can be said that they they always come out of their drawdown. And if we just you know take the analogy to the trend following space, I mean, how often haven't we heard? You know that trend following is dead just because it's in a drawdown, and uh, rightly you know, so. A year later, it's at a new peak. So, why do you think it is so difficult to convey this to investors? Because what we see and what you've seen as well is they always tend to jump ship at the worst possible time.
0: Well, I think it's common a, again. It's a symmetry of knowledge, right? So they don't see what you're doing day to day. Uh, <laughs> they don't. They can't have the same confidence in you as you have in yourself. Sure. Um, and then I think there is, you know, most of the money that people, you know, most people managing money, it's not their own money. Right. They have a fiduciary responsibility to somebody else. Yeah. And, and therefore that overrides... You know it becomes career, you know the decision becomes do i do I stick with merchant commodity fund because I'm pretty convinced Mike and Doug yeah you know I haven't suddenly become stupid that they aren't blowing the fund up because they've had a nervous breakdown or something um and therefore are probably better sticking with them and trusting that you know they'll work their way through this, yeah. But the consequences, I might, you know, if I do that, I might lose my job. Sure,
1: sure. <laughs> no, no. I mean, this uh, is this uh, uh, is the thing. I mean, it 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 takes years of data yeah. and analysis yeah. for people to get convinced and comfortable yeah. with an investment strategy, but it only takes a few months of bad performance yeah. for them to well, well, jump ship.
0: No, again, which is, you know, you can sort of, you know, you understand, I guess, why many people when they get to a certain size deliberately dial the risk down. Right. Because why take that chance? Cool. Have you ever been tempted to do that? No, because philosophically, it's, again, you've got to be true to how you, true to your own process and style.
1: Mm.
0: And so, you know, from our point of view, it's we wouldn't give money to a commodity strategy personally for, you know, a bomb plus return. Right. You know, commodities are intrinsically very volatile. And therefore, the, you know, ideally, the allocation that's coming to you should be from the, from the higher risk-seeking part of somebody's portfolio. Yeah, yeah. It shouldn't be a bit. shouldn't be a base load to a normal portfolio. No,
1: no, that's that's very true. Now, uh, last question on on risk. What keeps you awake at night, Mike? Is there anything when you look at the whole universe of of, of different types of risks, that that you think more about where you say, mm, I wouldn't...
0: Regulatory. Okay. Regulatory compliance. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I'm, you know, you know, in my case, I spent 32 years living with market risk. Yeah. And, you know, that's, that's the sea we swim in. That's the life we've chosen. Um, and by definition, if you've been, you know, the first five years sorts out people who are comfortable living with market risk from people who are. Yeah. And so if you're still doing it after 15, 20, 25 years, then you, you're you comfortable with market risk. And Yes, you know that you're not going to win every time, that unexpected stuff's going to happen, mm. but that's the life you've chosen. Yeah, um, And you've got your risk management processes to – Take care of that, so on and so forth. Sure. Reg- regulatory risk is becoming um, that's something where you know you fill the form in wrongly and <laughs> you might get a big fine, or yeah. you know that that's a whole that's a whole different arena. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that that's very true.
1: I wanted to jump to another uh, area, which um, I don't know exactly how it plays out in in your business. So so maybe there aren't so much to talk about, but maybe there is. Um, And it's just research in general. I mean, do you, as a business, I mean, do you have people who does research, meaning, um, and the best example I can think of is that as things change, whether it be uh, China playing a bigger role, whether it be technology uh, as a whole. I mean, does some of these strategies that you employ, do they also change and therefore you you need to kind of do separate research in order to keep up or, or learn new things?
0: I think, um, let's say, in the business of analyzing commodity fundamentals, that to the extent that changes, it changes with with shifts in supply and demand patterns. right? So, you know, it's become, you know, having good intelligence in South America has become much more important in the last 10 years than it was previously, as Brazil, Paraguay, and Uruguay, and Argentina have become much bigger soybean producers. Okay, okay. And so, therefore, you know, were you where you focus your research efforts, where you focus your networks, that evolves over time. Sure. Um, But it doesn't... And and how that information is collected changes over time. So for instance, in Petroleum now, you have this company, Genscape, that uses helicopters and infrared cameras to see inside oil tanks. So you can see... You can see how full the tanks are in Cushing and so on. Wow. But we we don't view ourselves as a research-driven organization. So we buy in a lot of our research. Sure. Where we think our competitive advantage is is in what does it mean. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, typically what will happen is, you know, let's say we're looking at the – you know, next year's U.S. soybean crop. And typically at the beginning of the growing season, you'll start with a range of expectations around what the crop size is going to be. Mm. And as the growing season goes on, those expectations will, will narrow and change. Sure. What, we, what we're trying to do is basically say, well, okay, here's what the market's pricing at the moment. Do we th- and do we think the consensus is right? If the consensus is wrong, so if the bean yield isn't forty-three but it's forty, what mm-hmm. does that mean for the price? Yeah. And so it's, you know, we're we're sort of handicapped. We're we trying to come up with where do we think the yield's actually going to be, and what does that mean on price? We're not. We're not sending econom- agronomists into the fields in Iowa to count the pods or anything. <laughs> um, that's not our competitive advantage. Sure. What, what, an interesting question that we spent a lot more time thinking about you know, really since the advent of the global financial crisis is the interpretation of macro data. So what does the Fed policy mean for oil prices? Right, right, sure. Um, and again, that's an art, not a science. So, you know, we talk to macroeconomists. So, in two thousand five, two thousand and six, we'd have never thought of talking to a macroeconomist. No. no. Today, we talk to macroeconomists fairly regularly. Sure,
1: sure, sure. Are there any of your strategies that can be backtested? I mean, are there any in in you know to to time? No. Try and know?
0: Well, I, I shouldn't say no. I'm I'm saying no because we are we are non-quantitative guys. Sure,
1: sure, sure, sure.
0: So actually, you could do regression analysis on, and lots of people do. I was just reading a piece of research today that was looking at the level of contango in WTI time curve with the stocks. You know, with the days of cover that's in inventory. Mm. And so people do that. Yeah. And they say, well, okay, you know, today we've got 430 million barrels, which is you know the U.S. consumes 20 million barrels a day. So we've got um, we got uh, however many days, odd, yeah, 20 yeah, odd days, 20, 20 odd days of cover, and so that's quite high. Um, and therefore, you know, plotting on this linear regression. You know the time curve should be 150, not 130. Okay. Um, so there are people who do that analysis. We sure. don't. No,
1: no, no, no. That's fine. That's fine. I wanted to ask you just a couple of questions uh, on the on the business side, if I can call it that, and that is just to better understand. So, what's the typical investor? In, in in your fund, what what do they look like? Because obviously you're you're somewhat uh, unique uh, in 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 the bigger space. So and you can go back in time, uh, you know, and, and look at it over yeah, so time.
0: T- today is not representative. Exactly, sure, sure. So I, I you know, let's say over the period two o two o six to twenty twelve. Yeah. Um, typically, we'd have had about twenty percent of our AUM was coming from institu- sort of large institutions, such as sovereign wealth funds, endowments. Sure. Uh, actually, maybe not as much as that. We were we were seventy percent fund of funds.
1: Okay. Oh, yeah. Sure.
0: Ten sorry, ten percent institutional and twenty percent family office and high net worths, including ourselves. Okay. Okay. And today today we are today we are fifty eight percent ourselves. Right. Twenty two percent twenty two percent pension funds, um and about five percent fund of funds and sure. the balance family office and high net worth investors. So so at different you know, at our peak we were attracting you know, every sector of investor. Yeah.
1: Another question I get from uh, from listeners uh, probably more more frequently uh, now. Um, first of all, in your fund, I, I'm not even sure what the margin to equity is, but I imagine you have uh, quite a, 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 an amount of spare cash if you're using yes. futures. Yeah. What do you do with your cash today in a world of zero interest rates and Potential more risk with governments uh, and their ability to repay uh, an ever-growing debt. Yeah.
0: So, on your question on margins to equity, typically we would be running somewhere between five and fifteen. Okay. With, with an average of about ten. So, so yes, we have lots of excess cash. Um, we've never done anything very exciting with that cash. We always took the view that you know we're a fund that's targeting. You know, a twenty-one and you know a twenty percent return. Any anything incremental we might make by taking some risk with the cash is not worth it. Mm. Um, and so, prior to two thousand and seven, we used to sometimes buy T bills. Mm. Um, since two thousand and seven, we just keep it in bank accounts with with strong banks in Singapore. Right. And the the interest contribution of course is much lower during about 400, between three and 400 basis points of our return in, in that period 205 to 209 was interest. Um, Sure. um, Today it's close to zero. Um, I mean,
1: you mentioned Singapore, which is um, something I just wanted to, to ask you about. I mean, Location freedom in our business is is obviously very strong. Uh, You're based in in Singapore. You have some presence in in London as well. But what does location mean for a business like you now that it's become fund management rather than physical trading of commodities? And and let's disregard the fact that you also have a physical trading business.
0: Yeah. So, um, you know, Singapore is probably still still the best uh, the best place to run a business okay So in terms of the tax regime, the relative cost of quality office space, um, availability of talented people so on and so forth. Mm. Singapore's a fantastic place to run a bit business. Mm. In terms of the strategy we trade, it's a great place to trade things like rubber and palm oil. It's a great place to be to get a good sense on the pulse of what's going on in China and in India. Sure. Um, it's a terrible place to be time zone-wise for trading grains of petroleum.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and therefore, we've always split the trading team between Singapore and Europe for inception in terms of fundraising, Singapore is is still weaker than uh, London or New York. Mm. So it is easier for people to raise money in Europe and America than it is sitting in Asia. Yeah,
1: but at your at your at your peak days, what 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 was the geographical distribution of assets actually?
0: It was about seventy five percent Europe. Right. Okay. About twenty uh, percent, um, seventy seventy-five percent Europe, fifteen okay. twenty Asia, um, and the balance um, some South America, some okay. came.
1: Okay. Before we go to the last section, I wanted to ask you. I mean, you've obviously uh, been in many many different types of due diligence situations, whether it be conference mm. calls or meetings. Um, yeah. With a strategy like yours. What do you think that uh, potential investors fail to focus on, or should be focusing on, when they come and 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 wanted to really drill down to uh, to, uh, to you know get a handle on 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 you and your strategy and and so on?
0: Well, I think we've always had the challenge, and it's a bit like you know you prefaced our conversation with it the, you know the world of commodities and fundamental fundamental approaches to commodity trading are not areas most general investors are familiar with. Yeah. So when an investor comes into due diligence on an equity long short fund or a bond fund, he's very comfortable. He understands what the manager's doing. Mm. When he comes in to see us for the first time, we have to try and explain to him what we're doing. Yeah. Um, and, you know, does he have the time and the inclination for that process? Mm. We would say that, you know, a key part is, you know, how does the risk process work because you are trading leverage Mm. Um, and why it's not a scary, you know, commodities scare people because of their volatility. Sure, sure. Um, And so what we're trying to get over is, you know, here's our approach, here's our risk process, and this should give you more comfort around around what we're doing.
1: Now, the last section, Mike, I wanted to uh, talk to you about is, I call it general and fun, and it's a little bit just to... Get people to better, um, you know, get to know you maybe a little bit better, and, and 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 get some some good advice from 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 your side as well. But I wanted to ask just a, a question initially. We talked about a little bit why you, during the difficult time, kept going. You didn't want to leave uh, the business in a you know at a time of a drawdown and so on and so forth. Now today you're at a new peak in terms of performance. So what? So you've kind of you've done and delivered what 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 uh, what was one of the driving forces of, of staying in the game. But what drives you today? What what motivates you to continue to do what you do uh, at this time?
0: Well, we have a vision of a, you know, we want to build a commodity franchise that encompasses a commodity asset management business, but we also have a physical trading business. Mm-hmm. Um, And there's a great synergy between those businesses. Um, And so the physical business can give the – and does give the fun business, you know, great insights into what's, you know, that visibility into real-time supply, demand, um, so on and so forth. A successful fund management business with a decent amount of assets – is a great free cash flow generator. And that free cash flow can help build the physical business. So there's a... From our point of view, we want to grow both pillars of this commodity franchise. And And it's it's mutually reinforcing.
1: Sure. And in doing that, I guess at some point succession planning must come into the conversation with, with, you know, for, for you and Doc. I mean, are you... Are you thinking about that?
0: I mean, um, can, uh, yes, no, no, no. So, so certainly. So, you know, we a year ago we changed the name of the business. Um, so the fund management business prior to March uh, 2014 was called Ashling Analytics. We purposely changed the name to RCMA Asset Management to to build on the franchise idea. But more importantly, we also changed the ownership structure at that point. Okay. So firstly, we brought, we gave the two senior traders equity in the business. Okay. So, Chan Bieber owns, now owns 10% of RCMA Asset Management and Alistair Jones owns 5%. And we also sold 30% of the business to the holding company of the physical business Okay. So that so that the guys who the senior management team of the physical trading business then have a direct stake sure. in the success of the asset management business, for which they are providing information, yeah. you know, on demand. <laughs> um, so yeah, so we very consciously we felt we wanted to extend the ownership of the asset management company to our senior traders. Um, because we do want to build something that outlives me and doug <laughs> um the fund management the physical business has its own very experienced management team there sure um so yeah, we want to build something that endures beyond us as individuals,
1: sure, sure, sure. In your career, I mean, you said early on that you you like lying down on the couch reading books. Which <laughs> books? Which books would you recommend people to uh, to read to either improve them as an investor or as a trader or just as a businessman?
0: I, I don't read. <laughs> My reading is. Um, it was interesting, uh, as you know, Singapore just uh, just went through the loss of its yep. uh, its founding father Lee Kuan Yew. Yeah. And um, there, was, there was a little piece uh, caught My Eye, which was very typical of Lee Kuan Yew as a man, where he said uh, when, his, when his wife of many years was was incapacitated and so on, that he would read she, – she she'd studied English literature.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And he would read to her her favorite books, Jane Austen and so on. But he said for himself personally, he'd never waste time reading a novel. Right. The the only thing he read were you know nonfiction that could you know he could profitably use in the the business of of governing Singapore. I'm the complete opposite. I read for pleasure. Um, okay. My great passion is military history, so I, I love reading uh, military history books. Um, I and I I I, I read novels for for relaxation. Um. From military history, I think I I talk a lot, and the guys sometimes look at me funny, uh, but, you know, the concept of time and space. Right. And defense in depth. So give yourself time and space. Don't get backed into a corner. So I'd I'd always recommend to people read – there was a very famous uh, British um, military um, strategist uh, of the interwar period, a guy called uh, Little Heart. Mm-hmm. basil little heart and he developed a he developed the 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 earliest theories of um, of combined um, you know how to use tanks basically right and the, the british you, you know not being honored in his own land the british took no notice but um Guderian and rommel read little heart right. <laughs> <And, laughs> so so the blitzkrieg uh, the Blitzkrieg was actually conceptually developed by a British military uh, <laughs> military strategist In the so, um, more broadly, I, I actually found quite useful. Um, I read several years ago um, some books on the sort of psychology of traders
1: mm-hmm.
0: by a guy called Daniel Levy. Right. Okay. Which which I thought were very useful about you know the importance of preserving emotional capital and so on.
1: Sure, sure, sure. Well, with that interest in terms of sort of a military strategy, yeah. I think on your next flight uh, back to Europe, which I think is not so, uh, far, not away, so far away, yeah. y- if you haven't seen it already, I'll recommend the Imitation Game, which is obviously about how the British broke the Enigma code of oh, the I've Germans. Seen it. You've I've seen, seen it. that, yeah. 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 No,
0: very good.
1: yeah. So, um, I
0: don't, on a more broad broad topic, you know, many traders tend to be very you know, very monofocus types of individuals. Sure. I've, I've always thought that it is important to have a, you know, a hinterland as people say, not to be just your job. No. True. So, so I do enjoy reading, you know, reading fiction and so on. Sure. Sure.
1: Now you, I know you, you mentioned earlier, you have uh, children who are grown up now, but yeah. if you could pass on just one of your own skills to your children, what would that be and why?
0: <laughs> they would say, "No man is a you know they they know my weakness. They, they tell you lots of my weaknesses." What's my skill? I think um, intellectual robustness. Mm-hmm. What so does that ability, mean? Yeah. So the ability to argue, counter-argue, and not not be crushed, or you know, not to to be able to to be beaten in an argument and come back, and not you know just Flexi- I guess flexibility and, sure. you know, and not, not, not articulating that particularly well. no no
1: but that that's absolutely fine that's absolutely fine now can you tell me a fun fact about yourself Mike something that even people who knows you don't perhaps really know about you <laughs>
0: <laughs> well one well, you've met me personally so sure. so so um this this probably makes more sense to people who've never met me in right. person. So, know, yeah, to have seen me, this you you'll get sense of this because for the, for those of your listeners who don't know me, I'm I'm a big guy. So I you know I was a rugby player, sure. um, and I look like a former rugby player. I once in my high school days, amongst my other extracurricular activities, I was the lead oboe player in the school orchestra. Wow! Yeah, that—that
1: that I would not have suspected.
0: <laughs> so that's normally one that gets people uh, people laughing. Interesting. I was—I was also an altar boy till I was eighteen. Ah, okay,
1: okay. Well, there we are. Um, now, I, I asked earlier uh, about um, you know what are the what are the investors who come and see you? Potential investors who come and see you. What do they miss in terms of asking you uh, the right questions? So I have to turn that on myself as we wrap up as well, and and to give you justice, and that is, what have I missed uh, in, in in our conversation today? What are the things that uh, we should also uh, make sure we touch on, if anything, uh, before we I, we uh, end our conversation to make sure we do justice to you and, I, and to your firm.
0: I think at two hours and nine. Nine coming to ten minutes. I think uh, I've only myself to blame if there's nothing we've touched on. That's uh... okay.
1: <laughs> okay. <laughs> so,
0: so I think we've covered quite a lot.
1: <laughs> okay, great stuff. Now before we do finish our conversation, yeah. can you tell us where the the listeners can learn more about you? What's the best way to get in touch and, and learn more about RCMA?
0: Um, contact uh, myself or uh, my colleague E Q I A N. That's Y E Q U I A N. Um U I A. I'm sorry. So it's that all marketing and investor relationships handled out of Singapore.
1: Sure, great. And we will of course on, on the yeah. toptraders.com um, or toptradersonplot.com, I should say, uh, we'll put all the details uh, for that. So I think that's only one thing to uh, left for me to say and that is to to thank you Mike for your time it's been great conversations i I really appreciate your your transparency and your willingness to to share all of this uh, experience that that has uh, been uh, very unique and a and a big learning curve for for me as well um, and as I said you know uh, the listeners can find all the details on your um, firm and our conversation today in the show notes on unplugged.com. So I hope, Mike, that we'll be able to connect at a later date and get an update on all the great work you're doing. Um, and I wish you and your firm all the best. Thank you very much, Niels. All the best. Take care.
0: Okay. Bye. Bye-bye.
1: Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged.